what would you say this is? What's that? Like a hotel room in Romania? Close. <laughs> Close. A house. Oh, what's that? A house. A barn. Alright, alright. A building. Building. Okay, okay. Alright. Think, think maybe Franklin County. Moonshine still in Romania. If we show this on Sunday morning, we'll have a whole bunch of people wanting to go on missions to Romania. Uh, the, the, the missionary there, David, he said, he said something about a still. I was like, no, what, what, a still? Like a still? Still? He's like, yeah, like a still, like making liquor. There's one not too far from here. And I was like, you have got to be kidding. Can we go see it? I didn't, we didn't drink anything. I mean, it was all, it was all locked up and, um, I don't, Drink and don't rec- recommend, you know, especially breaking into someone still to get something to drink. That would be, but uh, check out, check out this, those giant mash buckets because they had like uh, plum trees everywhere on this mountain, like wild, organic plum trees that you could just walk along and pick. So what they would do is just get that stuff and then go go through the process. But I thought that that this would be somewhat interesting in Franklin County. To come back and say that your pastor from Franklin County went on a mission trip to the backwoods of nowhere, Romania, and there was a still. So, anyway, that's there's nothing spiritual about that at all to encourage you in your walk with Christ. That's just purely for informational purpose. What's that? Spiritual? Uh, well, it is having to do with the spirits, but yeah. Uh, that, that, okay. Um, hey, Jim. Are I, they said it's probably in, in in Romania. Everything's like probably. I found that out because it's like you know the law there maybe is not as strict as it is here. But he said it's probably illegal to sell it. But I, I guess they said it. This this is the way David said it. He said it gets so cold up there in the winter that people have built up a tolerance to this stuff. I was like, well, what proof is it? And they don't really know. They just said it's really, really strong. So I don't know how that compares to American moonshine. But um, but he said that they that, that helps in the winter or something like that. But I mean, people will find all sorts of you know reasons to drink. Like when I got sick a while ago, like a year ago, had some, some crud, like a lot of people, primarily from generations older than myself, Pastor, you, you need to, I'll tell you what would fix that. And it was, you know, this, and then it's, it doesn't just fix that, it fixes you. You know, your arm's hurting, I'll tell you what will fix that. You know, you broke your leg, I'll tell you what will fix that. It's like if people find any, any, any excuse to, you know, uh, get to imbibe. But anyway, um, here's... Uh, just a couple of pictures. These are uh, a couple of students that, that we worked with there. Um, this was actually a much broader camp. Uh, originally it was for college students, but they opened it up for high school students. And they had high school students all the way up to a guy working on his Ph.D. in biology, a girl who's working on her medical degree. And I thought it was so interesting, the culture there, because uh, when they'd have break time, everybody would do stuff together. High schoolers, college students... Graduate students, PhD students, medical students, all hanging out like there's no difference. Here, you get somebody working on their... Well, I'll hang out with the high school students. I'll invest in them. 
You know, it's kind of like, I'll, I'll, I'll voluntarily give of my time, but there it didn't seem that there was that type of, of leveling system of people. And um, this is David. We actually uh, knew each other in high school, and then he went to Romania <clears throat> his senior year of high school, went back for about five years, and he's been full-time for about seven um, over there now. And the Lord just changed. <clears throat> it's interesting, like both of us, in high school didn't really have plans to serve the Lord at all. And he was going to go into business and I was going into law school and now we're both in the ministry. And uh, he really made an awkward introduction to the students. He said, by the way, it is God's grace that Jeff is here doing this. So, um, But <clears throat> this guy right here, I'm going to talk about him on Sunday in depth. His name is Franco. And he was raised on the mountain there, uh, became a believer when he was 16, was disowned by his family, um, was almost beaten to death by his parents for becoming a Christian, um, was conscripted into the Romanian army. And in Romania, if you're a Christian, a true follower of Christ, they call you a repenter. It's kind of like a derogatory term. And he said every morning when they would have the soldiers line up, they would call his name and have him step forward all by himself, and he was known as the repenter. Just single him out to scoff at him, to mock him for being a follower of Christ. <clears throat> Absolutely phenomenal story. I'll leave the details out, but this place that we were, way up in the mountains, um, we landed in Bucharest, the capital city. We drove about two hours. All right? Then we got out of the car and hiked an hour. We did not hear a car the whole week on top of this mountain. And it was absolutely amazing. But I didn't know going into this that this place that they've done a lot of restoration, this, this house that they fixed so that there's beds there, they actually would siphon off. They built from the top of the mountain to where we were. Uh, they put PVC pipe together. And think about this engineering they put PVC pipe together all the way down the mountain to funnel the sand to where a guy at the bottom would collect the sand in a sack, and they made their own cement. All of the rocks that were on the walkways there, they quarried from the local river, carried it up like handwork. This place that we were staying is the very place that this guy would bring Christians during communism in Romania, which was one of the most brutal communist regimes in Eastern Europe. I mean, they pulled no punches. Richard Wormbrand, who we've a lot of us have heard about with the voice of the martyrs, this is his country, Romania. This guy, Franco, would bring people way up into the mountains to have, like, Bible retreats. We could call it Christian seminars or just a way to have, like, a clandestine secret meeting for Christians. And it was so remote that the secret police in Romania wouldn't hike up. And, and I just, I got up one, one morning because the water was heated from like this, uh, this outdoor stove, like a wood stove. And so I got up to, you know, try to help out. I was just sitting there talking to the Lord and putting wood in the stove. And it was, and I don't, I don't get, <clears throat> I'm not that, uh, I guess, emotional of a person um, in some ways. But I was just blown away that I, it was like you were standing on holy ground. And this guy came on Friday. He, he took us hiking uh, on the mountain, showed us how to find like, uh, like wild nuts and things like that to survive. 
and then he, he got this piece of grass. And I've, you know how some people, they can get the piece of grass and blow in it, and it sounds like a really shrill rabbit sound? Well, he, he, it kind of sounded like an accordion and a violin, and he played Amazing Grace on this piece of grass. And it sounded like with the vibrato of the violin, and, and, and Justin got it on, on video. I mean, just professional-looking deal. He's going to upload it on the Internet. I mean, that's going to be like a million hits on YouTube. And I, this 75-year-old guy went hiking on the mountain with all of us, and we went back to the mission. We sat down, and for an hour straight, he told us stories. And high schoolers all the way through Ph.D. and doctoral students, none of us moved. And I thought... I'm sitting in the presence of a hero. That's, uh, that's him where he uh, grew up. And uh, it's pretty, it pretty neat because his grandson was there. And uh, his grandson actually helped us. He was the one who guided us up the mountain. And so for me, <clears throat> stuff like this is... Uh, very, very meaningful. So, so thank you guys for for supporting me to go, and uh, we'll talk about this a lot more <clears throat> on Sunday. So. <coughs> go to uh, to Romans four, and uh, last week Ben Ben talked about. The beginning of salvation and what that means and how we're supposed to understand how that came from Scripture. Uh, kind of the main idea what we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to contrast the ideas of a covenant and then a, a, a contract. So here's, here's the main idea. And by the way, if I, if I miss words or if I begin to ramble, it's because I've been up for a while. So if there's something that I say tonight that's heretical, don't hold it against me, please. All right? We'll just put an asterisk by this one. Um, the main idea is contractual obligations produce suspicion, but covenantal love should produce faithfulness. Think about any time we've ever gone into a contract with anybody. There's always you have to read the what? Fine print. Why do you have to read the fine print? Why is that so important? Exactly, they hide stuff. They're tricky. You ever watch those commercials, and and they present the product, and they take their time and emphasize their words, and the the, the elevation of the voice is just so precise to let you know that you need this product. But then when they get to the end of the commercial, remember how the narrator's voice kind of speeds up, like make an auctioneer's voice look slow. It's like they're trying to give you all the good stuff, but there towards the end they're trying to minimize to the point you can't even understand what could hook you financially. Throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, God never deals in terms of contracts. He always deals in terms of covenants. So we're going to try to unpack what that, what that looks like, and then we're going to hopefully have time for some really neat um, application towards the end. But before we jump into the Bible, we do this sometimes, uh, we're going to look at an objection. What about all the people before Christ? You've ever heard this before, right? Like if salvation is through Jesus alone, then what about all those people who came before Jesus? All right? Here's another wrench in the scenario. 
Let's say for a moment that we're talking to a lost person, most all of which reject a young earth model um, that I hold to, and I know that I'm in the minority in some circles. It's just for me, my everyone has a foundation, right? Everyone has a standard. For me, it's the Word of God, all right? So for me, I'm going to start from the premise of what is the clearest explanation of the Word of God. I think it's a young earth. Now, can we have fellowship with people who believe that God's Word is inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, but may have a different interpretation? I believe, yes, we can. All right? And we, we looked at that several months ago, and all this stuff um, is online. But if you're talking to especially an atheist, they're going to believe that the universe has been here for probably, what, about 14.6 billion years or so, somewhere around that general area. So if that's true... Obviously, they don't believe that people have been there the whole time because it had to go from the, what is it, the goo to the zoo to you. Yes, that's it. All right. So, here's the thing. If Darwinism is true, man or mankind-like creatures have been around for a long time. If salvation is only through Christ, isn't God cruel for waiting so long to send salvation? And this is Christopher Hitchens, uh, who was... One of the four horsemen of the new atheist. He is now deceased, and as we see up here, he is a former atheist. Now get that. Okay, I've been up for 26 hours straight. I get that. There we go. Yeah, he believes, he believes now. Okay. And actually, we prayed for him um, back when he had his cancer, and he actually expressed his thankfulness to a lot of Christians groups who, who prayed for him. And this is talking about a guy who is not friendly at all to Christians. So this is... Um, an objection that he brings up. Let's just open up for a little, um, I guess we could say, quick draw, apologetics, evangelism. What might be some things that we could say at this point to this objection? Hebrews 11, 1 and 13 through 16. Okay. We talk about all the people in the Old Testament who were looking forward to Jesus coming. And because of them, it says, um, God is not ashamed to call them... To be called their God, for he is preparing a city for them. Okay, awesome. So, so it's like salvation is through Jesus, but if you're before Jesus, then it's... You believe in the promise that he comes. Awesome. Still through Jesus. Yes. Still through Jesus. It's, we're looking one direction and they were looking another direction. They were looking forward and we're looking back. Okay, alright. salvation is through <clears throat> Good, good. Anything else? Pretty much hits the nail on the head. Okay. Um, and then the question is, you know, they, they may move to what about people in the Old Testament. Here's an interesting thing I heard from William Lane Craig. Um, and he accepts, he, he goes along these lines. He says, even if we accept the theory of an old earth, which he does, I do not, but um, we... We can take aim at the fallacy that assumes that large periods of time equal large segments of total population. Think about it. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. If you accept an old earth model, people have been around for a long time before that. I mean, think about it. If you, if you pick up any, any you know, textbook, it's going to have them there a long time. So, did a little bit of research, and here's, here's what I found. Total number of humans that have ever lived has been estimated. Once again, you can't count this, but based upon what we know in math, at 110 billion people. Approximately 6% of all those people uh, are alive today. All right? 
Only about 50 million had lived by the time of Christ. Do the math, only 4.54%, give or take, lived before the time of Christ. If you've ever looked at any history book, you see how small the total human population was for literally thousands of years before Jesus came. And then you can compare, we don't have time to do this, I've got the notes on it, you can compare often thousands of years before Jesus. Like if we take a young earth model from the beginning of the creation all the way to Jesus, and that's not going to equal hardly anything just to a few years once the industrial revolution set in, people started moving to cities, we started developing cures for diseases and so forth. So just tell um, an atheist who ever brings that up, say you do know that 95% or so of the people ever born have been born since Jesus came, not before. Large periods of time do not equal large segments of population. And I love this verse here. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come. Isn't that good? God's timing. When the fullness or the completeness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, God has it figured out. Amen on a Wednesday night. I, I think that as Christians, we should not be fatalist. We should never, ever, ever say, well, God's got it figured out, so I don't have to obey what God has told me. All right? We should obey with everything we have, but man, God has us in His hand. I mean, He has our jobs, He has our health, He has our families, He has our relationships, He has it all taken care of. There's not going to be a day to where God is ever stressed out about how to take care of us. And I think the more often we as Christians get up thinking that way and live that way, there will be a lot more peace and a lot less stress. So um, I think a verse that you referenced, here's just a few things, um, verses to jot down. Um, They didn't have a printer on the Delta flight, so I'm sorry. Uh, And since Germany, I should have emailed this to Mary this morning, but lack of sleep can cause you to not have common sense. So if you just want to jot these references down, here are some texts in the Bible that clearly teach that salvation is only through Jesus. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So this right here clearly tells us that there are no good people. Okay, It's not as if we start out as good people, then we become bad people, and then we're in need of God's forgiveness, so he comes and helps us be good people again. It means that you start out in the red. All of us do. John 14, 6, this is, most of us know this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. <clears throat> Do you find exceptions in these verses so far? I, I, I don't. But if you're a theologian, you can. Well, what Jesus is really saying, by the way, I think we should be very, very careful when anybody ever says, well, you know, what Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethne, the ethnicities, But what Jesus is really saying is not what Jesus clearly said. Okay? 
I hope that will be a Bible study, a hermeneutical tool that we can all we can all understand that whenever people and here's the interesting thing too, when we read tough verses like this, like Acts four twelve, for example, um, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. First Timothy two five, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Isn't it interesting that most of the twisting of Scripture, always, at least in our culture, okay, it dilutes it, right? There's very few people today that are going to make it harder than what Jesus said. Except for certain groups that are dying away that say you have to do, 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 do this in addition to the words of Jesus, like you can't get any more difficult than this. Um, I'm going to try to... Yeah, I'm going to... Okay. What about this, if we say we believe this outside of Wednesday night at our jobs, family reunions, if somebody brings up these verses, if they have their Bible that they found... And they're going to try to pin you to the wall, and they found they found them right, like they googled them, like bad Bible verses, all right. And it's this atheist website, whatever. And they come to you, and they try to pin you to the wall, saying, "You believe this stuff? It's in your Bibles. I don't know. That's in my Bible. It's in my Bible too. Okay, you believe that stuff? How could you ever believe that someone's faith may be inferior to your faith?" Something along those lines. Because it may be okay when we say, hey, I believe that Jesus is my Savior and He's changed my life. People hear that and they're like, man, that is so good for you. I'm so happy that you have found something that makes you happy. Quote, unquote, 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 unquote. Asterisk, underline, bold, italicize. Right? Like, it's all up to you. But then if we actually say this applies no matter what you do with it, like no matter if you want to take this out or this out, it still stands, then that becomes a point of... Con- it's kind of like a conflict between people's view of us and Scripture. What might be something that we could say if people try to pin us with, with these verses? Okay, yeah. Good. So it's not like I'm making this stuff up, right? Like I want to make it hard on everybody. Oh, look at me, I'm, I, I go to Mr. Church Man, right? It's not that. What well, may be something else? Okay. Alright. Good. Have you ever found that some people just want to argue? I find that more and more. I'm going to be 32 in about a couple, couple months or one month, something like that. And I, I think a lot of times in love, we just need to go Romans chapter 1, verse 16 on them. In love, I am not ashamed of the gospel. There is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew, to the Greek, to the middle class, to the poor, to the rich, 
for everyone who believes. I believe that because I believe that there's evidence for Jesus and that He lived and that Scripture is what He said. That's actually what He said. And there's a point in my life where I didn't believe this, but Jesus has saved me and He's changed my life and I would love to talk to you about that, how He can do that for yours. I don't want this to be weird or awkward. I'm not saying that I'm better than you. It's probably the case that I'm worse than you. I think every Christian, when we get saved, even looking back on it, if we got saved when we were a kid, we say like Paul, I'm the greatest of sinners. I think it's that point where God, it's kind of like um, we saw horses this week and, and they put the blinders on the horses. Have you seen that? To help them focus. I heard Dr., I listened to Dr. Hirschman's and Durden's message on the plane. Wow. The two guys that were preaching and we were gone for the Costa Rica mission trip. If I had Bose speakers on my earphones, I wanted to just crank it up and point it like at the plane. It was awesome stuff. But there's got to, I mean, to, to say it simply, there's got to be a point to where we say, look, you believe, you know, not to be argumentative, but you take a lot of what you believe on faith. I am not ashamed of this. I think a lot of times when we just stand up and we're not mean and arrogant about it. We say, I believe this is the truth and I want you to believe it as well. And if you can, let's talk about that. And people see that you're serious about this and that even if they push you back against the wall, you're not going to cow down and get into the fetal position because you love them. Not because we're trying to win an argument. That breaks down more walls than anything. So, yeah. tend to think of it as information that if you know people just get the information that mm. they'll get it. Mm-hmm. But you really need to treat it, and I've said this several times, my family's heard me say this, is treat it as this is God's word. And we need to present it as God's word. And it has power because it is his word. Mm. Not because I can deliver it any better or I can make it acceptable. Good. It has yeah. power right. because it is his word. Right. That's the way we need to treat it. That's the way we need to mm. handle it. You know, that I just, not that I, I got to make this a little more acceptable. Yeah. You know, the, the Holy Spirit can, the Holy Spirit's present can, can take that word and, and drive it right into where it needs to be. Awesome. Awesome. And for those, that, many other reasons, we don't need to be ashamed of it. Right? I think the older we get, the less we ought to care. This one thing for middle school, I mean, Bryce is like a really cool guy and he plays drums and all that and loves the Lord. But when I was in middle school, I was really insecure about what people thought about me. I can't wait to get to the age of retirement. I mean, I, if, if I lose my teeth, I'm going to make an absolute Olympic sport out of scaring little kids. I mean, all of a sudden, for no reason, this guy's dentures happen to fall out in front of the kid and then he's crying and I'm walking away. And like, Anyway, that's not very mature, not very pastoral or Christian. That's twisted, so let's go to this question. Um, <laughs> but you all know that's funny. Uh, you know it's funny. Um, so this, this kind of goes back to the, the same question. So if salvation is only through faith in Christ, then how could the Old Testament God followers be saved? We know, verse that you mentioned, one of them, Hebrews eleven thirteen. All these, and by the way... Um, Hebrews 11, it's been called the Hall of Faith, like the Hall of Fame. All of these Old Testament, I've heard this preached before, these Old Testament heroes, which some of them, it would 
I mean, our version of hero today is, is impeccable moral integrity, always doing the right thing. And when you look at some of the people that are they're like, whoa, he made the list? What, how did he make the cut on that one? It's that every single one of us are trophies of grace. All right? Every single one of us have been rescued and redeemed and forgiven. And after we've been forgiven, he corrects our stupidity by the dumb things we do, by forgiving us again and again and again. And it's through His grace, alright? Hebrews 11. All of these, they all died in what? In faith, not having received the things promised. And this is important because they're Old Testament. Jesus hadn't come yet. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. Okay? So they're looking. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Wow. What a great memory verse. The economy, I don't know where everybody stands on the health care issue, whether it gets overturned, whether it stands, whether the economy crashes in a really big way, whether we have to start trading in 22 bullets and rice. I mean, all of those types of things. This is not our home, all right? It is not our home. Whereas the, whereas the old spiritual, we're just passing through. Now, should we be involved? Yes, all right? And don't, don't get me started on that. I think we should do everything we can for our country um, and for our world to promote what God says is right. But ultimately, our salvation um, is not in a certain political idea. It's in the gospel. So the Old Testament faith, this is a point that you brought, Lee. The Old Testament faith, this is very helpful for us to explain this to ourselves and other people. It always rested, like the Old Testament believers always rested upon the premises of trusting in God's word. Okay, for, for example, this is a statement from Wayne Grudem, and he says, Thus, even Old Testament believers had saving faith in Christ, to whom they look forward, not with exact knowledge of the historical details of Christ's life, but with great faith in the absolute reliability of God's word of promise. Interesting. He goes on. As the history of the Old Testament progressed, God's words of promise became more and more specific. And the forward-looking faith of God's people accordingly became more and more definite. Yet it seems always to have been a faith resting specifically upon or on the words of God Himself. Wow. Cain and Abel didn't have really all that much to go on. Adam and Eve have fun, work, enjoy this. But here's the area that you can't eat. One stipulation. All through the Old Testament, God gave a progressive revelation of Himself and faith always had to do with trusting in what He said. When Jesus was in the grave, His body, didn't He go and preach to these people that had died before? Ooh. Okay. I think I think worms just started crawling out of the fence in here. All right, not really if you get freaked out, but okay. Um, all right, this would be something that we could discuss in detail sometime. But um, we we know that the scripture says that Jesus went and preached to the spirits that were in prison. Okay, what did he preach? Some people believe that Jesus went there to preach in hell 
I'm Jesus, and if you want to receive me now, then you can't. But why, what might be some problems with that view? Okay, okay. So if you're going to go to hell, you should have been born before... Like, if, that, if there would have been a good time to go to hell, it would have been before Jesus died, right? And you're there like, man, this has been a bummer for a thousand years. Okay, offer to get out? Yes! But C.S. Lewis says that hell is locked from the inside. It's not totally true, but it's a good illustration that the people who are in hell hate God, and they don't, they don't want to be with Him. So the, the other view is that Jesus went there to declare his victory. Remember he has the keys of what? Death and hell. Alright? Jesus, and I don't know if y'all, have y'all ever seen Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames? Has anybody seen that? Or, okay. Uh, okay. okay. Um, it, it was really big in, in the 90's and it was uh, this big drama and they had the strobe lights and Satan and it's just really interesting. But they had Jesus who was was crucified and they had people come in and it was, I mean, strobe lights going. It was pretty intense. And Jesus is in the grave and then they have uh, the He's Alive song by Don Francisco and then it builds and builds and builds and when it comes at Christina and says, He's Alive, the guy playing Satan just flies out of hell, right? And he just is like rolling on the ground and he's shivering over in a corner and he holds up these keys and Jesus grabs these keys. It's just like a triumphant Lord. So, um, I think that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison because the Bible says that Jesus did. I didn't think he went to hell. I thought he went to people in the grave because nobody had risen from the grave until he did. Right, and we're not saying that Jesus went to hell like Jesus was sent to hell. Um, I, I don't. I don't believe that. I know some people do. Like Jesus is down there in torment. But that Jesus, that is the realm of the dead, the spirits who are in prison, which that is what hell is. You can call it different things. And he did that because he had died for the sins of the world. And it was the power of hell, the influence of the demons and Satan upon the people to deceive them, to kill Jesus, and thinking that if he killed Jesus, this is Satan's logic, then he has defeated God. He has killed the Son of God. But then if all of that goes through, and then the Son of God rises from the dead, you've just lost everything because He has just paid for the sins of all who would believe. And now, He's back. So Jesus, just to make it clear, preached to the spirits who were in prison. I think the best interpretation there um, is that it was it was a victory speech. I think it's in is it first or second Peter? I remember exactly exactly where. If somebody wants to find that, we can come back to it. Um, yeah, let's let's go on. Um, there's a couple of books I, I would recommend to you. You can go look up Don Richardson. Um, he wrote what's called the Peace Child, and um, he also wrote some works about. We don't have time to get into this tonight. But in a lot of the religions in the world, there is the concept of blood sacrifice. There is the concept of a redeemer. There is the concept of sin. And um, 
It's an interesting, interesting uh, book. There's also uh, a scholar, Winfrey Corduan. I mean, it'd be really rough. I think if you have the name Winfried Corduan, you will not be picked first in pickup basketball in high school. You will be number one on the chess team. But Winfried Corduan has a very interesting theory, and this is accepted by many scholars, that in the beginning, one God, right? Scripture. What happened is there was a corruption of that and, and polytheism, the worship of many gods, is a corruption of original monotheism. Years ago, scholars thought that religion was created by people and they started worshipping individual, all of these deities. And after time, the evolutionary model got to this peak where they said, you know what, it'd be easier just to worship one god, let's go that route. What we know now is that in every religion that we've encountered, except for Shinto in Japan, it's really hard for people to understand really a lot of anything in that religion, that there is the concept of a sky god who is who lives in heaven, who's ultimate, who cannot be reached, who's been offended, and we know that we should have a relationship, we should have communion, but there's no way to get to him. So going to tribes, there is kind of like an open door to say, we know who the god is that you know about, but don't know how to get to. Long, interesting discussion there. Um, we'll try to get through this. There, there's a couple of covenants. We're, we're going to uh, put them in a succinct way. Uh, in Scripture, number one would be the Adamic covenant with uh, Adam. We could call this the covenant of obedience. We know that God says in Genesis 2, verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but, verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In Hebrew, you can translate this, dying, you shall die. It is an extremely strong expression in the original language that you will be dying, and in your dying, it will result in you die. Brutally strong language right here. And some people ask, is keeping the covenant of work still possible today? Think about it like this. If you and I have no imperfection, what can God judge us for? If we have no sin, there's no problem, right? True? It goes back to that original sin thing, right? Like, you know, we're going to get to Romans 4 in just a second, so here we have this problem, right? So if there is no imperfection, there is no judgment. We, we understand that. But we know that no one can perfectly obey. Wages of sin is death. Also Romans 3.23, for all of sin. But here's where it gets really good. This is where you can break this down for a non-believer. Christ perfectly obeyed the law in its entirety. We're not here. We're here. We could never be this. So that means that we're all... In the words of the old preachers, we're all... And this is not cussing. We're all doomed and damned. Okay? All who repent and trust in... Wow. All right. Yeah. Good deal. That was the um, the emphasis part. I mean, getting to Jesus. That was, you know, like the... Okay. Yes. All right. Uh, number four. All who repent and trust in Jesus have a perfect standing with God. Second Corinthians 5.17. All who are in Christ Jesus are a new creation. Brand new. Okay? Um, and then secondly, the covenant of grace. 
stop right here for just a second, and once again, we may run out of time, but we'll try to fly through this so we can apply it. Okay, in the Old Testament, let's talk about Adam. What about do not eat of this tree was so hard to understand? Think, think about it. That's pretty clear. Then we can move to, let's say, the covenant that God established with Israel. Don't eat this. Don't marry the people who don't worship me. Right? Don't worship idols. Don't murder each other. If you you, you take a step back from the seriousness of the Old Testament, you're like, that is kind of clear, right? A lot of people have the view of God today that he's like this cosmic trickster and he's got all of these, if you've ever seen like those video of a rat trying to make its way through a maze, you know, trying to get to the cheese and it's like bumping into different walls and so forth. It's not like that at all. God is clear, okay? So the covenant of grace, which is what Christ instituted for us today as New Testament believers, the parties are God and those that he will redeem. Christ is the mediator who reconciles us to God. The condition. So how do we become a part of this covenant? It is faith in the what? In the work of Christ. The original covenant, we could say, a lot of theologians call it the covenant of obedience with Adam, or the covenant of works. If Adam had not disobeyed, there would have been no sin, there would have been no fall, and we wouldn't have said that Adam earned his salvation by good works. It would have been simply that his obedience never allowed for sin to come into the world. So it's like Jesus' perfect obedience did what our father, Adam, our first father, could never do. Isn't that interesting? And yet through Jesus, through our faith in Jesus, he offers us the benefit of what our father Adam could never ever achieve. Think about where we're going to go with this. What role does works play in the covenant of grace today? We know we can't get saved by working. James 2.17, faith without works is... Dead. John two four through first John two four through six. Let's turn to that very quickly. First John chapter two verses four through six. The Bible says, "The one who says I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him." The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So, obedience is a demonstration of our salvation. Grudem says this, Through this obedience, um, though this obedience did not in the Old Testament and does not in the New Testament earn us any merit with God, nonetheless, if our faith in Christ is genuine, it will produce obedience. And obedience to Christ is in the, Old Test- in the New Testament seen as necessary evidence that we're truly believers and members of the new covenant. And those of us who've been to Bible studies before say, that's old news. Think about where we're going to go with this. 
applying this. Here's the question. How does entering a covenant versus a contract with God affect your view of Him? A contract with God would be what a lot of people think salvation is. If I get good enough for Jesus to save me, then He saves me, but then I have to stay good enough, and if I don't, then the contract will be broken. As opposed to a covenant to where He says, you could never be good enough, I'm going to save you, and because I'm good, I'm going to keep you in this covenant. How does that contrast affect our view of God? Very broad question. How he understands us and he understands our limitation. Jesus love. Good. Yeah. A covenant's everlasting and you can't do it when we break it. He holds it. Yeah. Good. Like no statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. No clause in there for our weaknesses. What would be a fair contract between you and God? We're big about fairness. What would it be? We were fair. We don't serve in salvation. Okay. Okay. We just don't deserve it. Would y'all agree? We've got all believers here tonight. <laughs> Oh, I'm good. I deserve it, right? Okay. And, and, and so if, if, we don't, if we don't deserve the love and everything that we receive from the Lord, eternal life, and so on, what would be a fair contract between us and God? Agreement, deal. What would be fair? I Okay. All right. Yeah. Remember a group of people who, who really wanted to keep that contract? Bible? At least that seems to be the way they misunderstood God. They had all these rules. If I do this, and I do this, and I don't do this, then I'm not only right with God, but I can go to church and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here. No. Pharisees. You know what came to mind for, for me? I was examining this question here, thinking up the best application questions that we could ask. I'm sure there are far better ones than this, but I said, a fair contract would be that I uphold my end of the deal. Long story short, Jeff ends up in hell, and it's fair. More than fair. In what ways does the work of Christ put our obedience into perspective? Just to set this up, and we'll, we'll close on this. What's that? Yeah. Filthy, filthy rags. Best I can do, that's it. That's what the scripture says, Isaiah. Think about what Christ has done for us. 
Think about His work. And think of what He asks of us. He asks of us to love one another. He asks us to go in the power of... This is so crazy. He says, I want you to go to all nations, your people, people outside you, people you don't even know, and you'll go and you're going to teach what I taught you. But I'm going to give my Spirit to you to complete the whole thing. I will never leave you from point A to point infinity. And so for me, when I think about what the Lord has done for us, and what He's done for me, and what He tells us to do for Him, not not to earn the salvation, but but so we we can have joy through obedience, think about the Lord's Supper. He says, do this in remembrance of me. We drink juice and eat crackers and he bled and gave his life. He tells us, be baptized. That is the confession of faith. That is the public profession. It's not walking down. It's baptism. He asks us to do that and that represents his work of actually dying. For me based upon what He's done and what I deserve and what He's asked me to do and given me the ability to do through His Spirit and promised that when I do it, He's going to be with me. And not only that, He brings a lot of good friends to help you do it together. Say, Lord, there's nothing too difficult that You could ask me to do. I am Yours. And so let that be our prayer. That it is only through His power that we've been given the covenant. And praise God, it's not a contract. Because I don't know if you're like me, but I would definitely do something to foul it up. 